Mark the 8th chapter, the 36th verse. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Tonight I preach this title, this which seemingly would be a simplistic thought, but I preach this, not enough. Not enough. Would you lay your Bibles down and lift your hands one more time toward heaven with your eyes and your voices and would you begin to pray and ask the Lord to have his way from this moment forward. Father, we need you. God, I cannot do it without you. I need you right now in this house. You know every situation and circumstance, every individual that's under the sound of my voice and watching by the way of the internet. Lord, I pray right now by the authority of the word of God and by the power of the name of Jesus that you would do your intended purpose for this service. That passion and purpose will be received and given tonight in the name of Jesus Christ. Now would you clap your hands unto the Lord if you're going to do it by faith believing. And God bless you. You may be seated. Not enough. I stated a few moments ago that I'm knocking on 40's door. I don't feel 40. My mind still tricks me into believing I'm in my 20's and I can still run the basketball court. That I still have the ability to play softball in the summer and in the fall. And I get pumped up and I get amped up for it when I get that, that text from the younger guys. Say, do you want to play basketball? Oh, I, I pull out the old basketball shoes. I put on the knee brace. I put on the other knee brace. I put on the ankle brace. And I get geared up. I'm ready to go. I go out there. I do my stretches. And I say, now we're playing half court, correct? we can surely play five on five on half of this thing it's big enough all the young guys just shake their head at me so reluctantly I grab grab my team or they choose me I guess I'm like the last kid on the playground we began to run full court and I do good for one game I turn it on I'm scoring left and right I'm assisting left and right I'm grabbing rebounds out of the sky I'm about this far from dunking it. <laughs> and about halfway through, we're playing the 12 win, straight wins. And I'm, I called George Washington. Chopped down the cherry tree. So I'm the guy that's going to stand there and I'm a cherry pick. You guys go ahead and play all defense. I'm going to stay down here on offense. You guys, you guys got it. You're younger. You're quicker. And it's brought to my attention that life is very short. I never thought I would hit 40 years old. When I was some of these guys' age, I thought, man, 30-year-old guy playing with us? Oh, man, this game is going to go terrible. 30 years old is so old. Now I'm almost 40, and it's really not that bad. <laughs> 
And the longer I live, the more I come to realize how short life really is. James puts it best. He says, life is like a vapor that appears for a moment and then it vanishes away. The truth is, however, that it is not the shortness and the unpredictability of life that really bothers me as much as the suddenness and the finality which was, which is death intrudes on the land of the living. Death is even more unpredictable than life and no matter how long you or I may think we have on this earth, we're never really ready for it to come. It always seems as if death comes too soon, as if life is cut too short. There are always those things that are left unsaid, deeds that are left undone, and dreams that are left unfulfilled. And at the end of it all, when life is considered in the context of death, it never seems to be enough. Because life is always too short. We're always left with the simple questions, why God? Why did you take my loved one so soon? Or why did life have to end so abruptly? There was recently a story published in a leadership magazine. A story of Marshall Shelley. He and his wife had a child that lived for only two minutes. Toby was born with a rare and severe genetic disorder. And his life ended just moments after it began. To compound the grief, their two-year-old daughter Mandy died three months later. Marshall and Shelley, Marshall and Susan Shelley were left with one pressing question, why? Why does God create a child to live for only two minutes? Why did God create a child to live for only two years? The question is universal and we've all asked it at some point or time. Where's the justice in death that seems to come too soon? How do we make sense out of life that always seems to be too short? There is an answer to that question. And it is an answer that each of, each of us in this house needs to hear today. That God did not create a baby to live for just two minutes. God did not create a precious little girl to live for only two years. He did not create me to live to be just 40 years old, nor did he create you to live for three score and ten years. But God created us for all eternity. Because as the fact remains, we're not made for this world. No matter how much we want to live here and have our best life now, we are not created by the author and the finisher of our faith to live for this world. For heaven is my home. It is my eternal reward. So we ask the question, why God? God simply says, because you're not made for this world. When God formed you in your mother's womb, when you were fearfully and wonderfully made, He made you with an eternal purpose, with heaven in view. He didn't make you for the short, temporal, momentary life that you will experience in this world. God did not make you for the fleeting lifespan of a vapor that is here for a moment and gone and quickly dissipates the very next. But God made you for an everlasting existence in the heavenly places he made you to experience the wonders of eternity he made you to live forevermore with him God did not make you or create you to be a citizen of earth he made you to be a resident of heaven
From the very first breath that you ever drew on this earth, you were destined for better things than this world could ever offer you. I pray that you get that scholarship. I pray that you're good enough to possibly get into the NBA or the NFL or whatever platform of professionalism you want to be at. But don't forget why you are on this earth. You're not made to make millions. You're made to make disciples. You're not made to change the world by your name. We're made to change the world with his name. I've come to preach to somebody in this house under this body of believers that is questioning, wow, why are you here? What is your purpose in this life? I've come to tell you that from the very first time that God put his breath in you, he destined you for better living, better blessings, a better lifestyle because he's got heaven on his mind for you. From the moment your life first began, you were intended for eternal life. This world seems so permanent. It seems so real. If you don't believe me, think back to when you were in high school. You thought when you were a freshman, I can't wait to get out of high school. Now that I'm 40, I wish I could go back to high school. And know what I know now. Mm-hmm. This world is seemingly so permanent, so real, it's so final. But let me remind you that the span of time you are here is no more permanent than a baby in its mother's womb for nine months. The reality of eternity is far beyond my comprehension as the reality of this present world is to the baby that hasn't yet been born. You can't even begin to imagine it. The half has not been told. The Bible says eyes have not seen, ears have not heard. It's never even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for us in eternity. I've come to with a word from heaven tonight to tell you you are not made for this world. No matter what you go through, it's only a temporary thing because God has destined you to make heaven your home regardless of your family, regardless of your life situation. God has put eternity inside of you. You're not made for the temporary pleasures of this life. You're not made for the shallow fleeting moments that you encounter down here. There really is a heaven to gain. There is a place where the lamb is the light. There is a place where the walls are jasper and the streets are gold and the gates of pearl and there is mansions beyond the eyesight. There is a place where there is no more dying, where there is no more crying, where there is no more cancer, there is no more abuse. Hear me somebody, this life is only but a for a moment. I'm looking for a city where the lamb is the light. I don't think we ought to have to preach about hell to get us excited about heaven. I think we ought to just be able to preach about a place where there is no more sorrow. There is no more tears and pain. There is no more struggle. But there is righteousness. There is peace. And there is joy forevermore. I'm talking about a place called heaven. Come on, if you want to go there, give the Lord a great big shout. I'm talking about a place where there is no more death. 
There is no more cancer and leukemia. There is no more Alzheimer's. There are no more creaking knees and hurting backs. <laughs> it's a place where my loved ones who have lived for God and have already went on to the other side. I'm going to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb and I'm going to sit across from them and I'm going to worship and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm waiting for that day. I'm ready for that day because whatever this world has to offer, it's not enough. King Solomon was one of the if not the wisest man that ever lived. And he wrote scripture under the inspiration of God. And in Ecclesiastes 3 and 11, he opened a door of understanding into the human condition. A portion of this verse I'll read from the Amplified Version. It tells us that God has planted eternity in men's hearts. The verse goes on to explain there is a divinely implanted sense of purpose working through the ages which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy. I want you to understand this tonight that when God made you, when God created you, He put a little bit of eternity in your heart. There's a portion of your spiritual makeup that knows what it is to have fellowship with the Almighty. There is a part of you that has tasted a peace that passes all understanding a joy that is unspeakable and a love that is unfathomable there is a desire within each and every one of us that is planted there by God himself and there is nothing in this world that can satisfy that there's a deep stirring and a craving in your soul that nothing in this life will and can ever fulfill it's a gnawing feeling somewhere in the back of your mind that is always with you and that always reminds you that something within you is not satisfied, that something within you will never be satisfied by anything in this world. It doesn't matter how much you achieve, there will always be unfulfilled desire. It doesn't matter how many material things you obtain. There will always be that aching in your soul. It doesn't matter how successful you become. Your successes will never satisfy the longing that God has planted in your heart. Because simply the fact is this. You were not made for this world. You were not made for the temporary joys and triumphs of this life. You, they will Because simply they will never satisfy the eternal longing of my soul. Men have believed that the wealth of this world would satisfy the longing of their hearts. But the wealthy have thrown their lives away under the influence of unexplainable depression. Because all the money in the world can't give you peace that passes all understanding. People have believed that power and prestige, position and recognition would somehow satisfy that desire within. But they have been sadly disappointed as they have discovered that when they reach the pinnacle of that accomplishment, that they are still not satisfied. Still others have tried to fill the void with education and knowledge, but all the knowledge in the world will never satisfy that craving in your heart. Because there's a part of you that can only be satisfied by the presence of the Almighty God. I didn't realize how much I needed Him until He found me. 
I didn't realize what I was looking for until he found me. There was a longing in my heart. There's an aching desire within each and every one of us that longs for eternity. It's hard to explain, but we long for something that we've never known. I remember when I received the Holy Ghost, I went to school and I began to tell people about it. They asked me, what's it like? I said, I don't know, but it's good. Explain what it's like. I'm like, well, oh man, I don't know. I said, you look in the dictionary and you find the coolest word you can find and that still doesn't explain it. There's nothing like the power of the Holy Ghost. There's no greater feeling in the world than standing at an altar with your hands lifted. And that heaviness on your chest and that lump in your throat. Come on, somebody. And you don't know what to say except I'm sorry, God. Forgive me, Lord. And forgiveness begins to come over you. And and then you get baptized in Jesus' name. And all those sins up until that point, God washes them away through His blood by His name. It's as if those sins never existed. And you come up out of that watery grave and you throw your hands in the air and you begin to tell Him thank you. And God fills you with His Spirit. Eternity that is within you begins to bubble up. And it comes out as the evidence of another tongue that God gives you because God doesn't want you to settle for this world he's planted something of eternal value inside of you if you got the Holy Ghost you ought to clap your hands right now you ought to shout unto God and tell him I thank you Lord I could be a drug addict today but thank you I could be an alcoholic today but thank you I could be lost and undone but thank you Lord oh had it not been for the Lord on my side, I don't know where I would be. I don't know where you would be. But thank God, eternity was put inside of us. Uh, this world, the old song says, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My mind's made up. I don't know the rest of the words because I was a drummer. <laughs> Can I get an amen from any drummer? You only know portions of songs because you just don't know them because you're focused on the tempo. <laughs> Let us never forget that we are, as the Bible says, strangers and pilgrims here. That this world is not what we're living for. This life with all of its joys and its sorrows, its highs and its lows is not the sum of my existence. Not the sum of your existence. To the highest heights that we reach down here will never satisfy that longing inside of each and every one of us. The greatest achievements that we accomplish down here will never measure up to the hope for heaven that resides within us. We are simply just passing through on a temporary journey to an eternal destination. The metaphor of pilgrims and strangers is a rich biblical testimony to the fleeting nature of this life. It illustrates the truth that our stay here is temporary. The pilgrim is on a journey through a foreign land on his way home. Can I tell you tonight, heaven is our home. 
This world with all of its short-lived rewards and its foreign land in the context of the eternal desire that God has put on each one of us. Because we're not made for this. We're not created for this. It's not the sum total of my existence. I was made for heaven. I was made for eternity. We're made for something far away and far greater than what I can ever achieve in this world. There is nothing in this world that is worth giving up on God. There's nothing that can come to you. There's not a tax check big enough. There's not a fancy enough car, not a cool enough thread of clothes that can make you or make me turn away from the Lord because He's been too good to me. Micah 7 and 8 had it correct when he said, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy, for when I fall, I shall arise. The question, my friend, is not if you fall, because each one of us have the capability to fall down, but we got to get back up. We cannot let the fall or the mistake or the shortcoming, for the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You're not among perfect people. What you're among is mercy received people, grace given people, people that understand that the, the world is not their home and heaven is where we're on our destination to. The Apostle Paul expressed it well in Philippians 3 and 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we are also eagerly wait for the Savior, Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that we may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. My prayer is that when the rapture takes place and I make it, I have more hair. I, I, it's a crazy prayer, but I'm praying it. Lord, let me be a few pounds lighter. I want my, <laughs> I want my immoral body to be fit. I want it to be what I can't be now. I tell him I have a disease that's hand to mouth. Every time I'm around food, my mouth opens, my hand automatically goes to it. <laughs> but one day there will come a day where that eastern sky will split. And those which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. The Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. I'm looking for that city. And I don't want to go alone. I want to find somebody. And I want to say there's a place for you. That way you're living and what you're doing is not conducive to the place that God has prepared for you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I've come to tell you that God has a place prepared for you that you have to be willing and able to put aside everything in this earth and say, it's not enough for me to give up on my eternal reward. There's not enough in this world for me to step back on God. There's not enough in this world that's worth giving up my salvation for Numbers chapter 32 contains an interesting story it's at the end of a long journey after many years of wandering through the wilderness 
As they stand poised to finally possess the promise of God, the tribes of Reuben and Gad become enamored with the lands of Jazer and Gilead. The Bible tells us that the tribes of Reuben and Gad had a great multitude of cattle and these lands were particularly well suited for cattle. They had gentle rolling hills and green meadows and beautiful rolling streams. The conditions were absolutely perfect to settle there and to raise cattle in a family. But there was only one little problem. Those lands were on the wrong side of the Jordan River. When God made this promise to Abraham about the land that his seed would possess for an inheritance, it was very clear about the boundaries of the promise. And Jazer and Gilead were on the wrong side of that boundary. There is no doubt when God promised the Canaan land to the seed of Abraham, there was a portion of that land that was intended for the children of Reuben and Gad. But they came so enamored with what they saw on the wrong side of the river. They became attached to the land that they were supposed to be passing through. And somehow something tragic happened. And they started putting down roots in the land they were supposed to have been a temporary dwelling. Before they ever crossed over into that promised land, while the promise of God was yet a distant hope on the horizon... They decided that what they had found here was better than what they would receive over there. So they traded the promise for the present. At the time it seemed like a fair trade. At the time it seemed like the right thing to do. But what they did not realize was that they were condemning their children and their children's children to a brutal oppressed future. The promised land that God described to Abraham was separated from all the lands that surrounded it by remarkable geographical features. These natural boundaries would prove to be vital to the security of that nation. Some of Israel's worst enemies lived on her eastern border and the river Jordan was more than just a line that God drew on a map somewhere. It represented a formidable barrier for invading armies. In other words, God positioned their promise at the exact place where the enemy could not come in and take what God had promised them. When Reuben and Gad decided that they would settle for something less than the promises of God, when they decided that they were satisfied with the land that lay on the wrong side of the river Jordan, they unwittingly placed their family on the front lines of the battle for Israel's existence. Because they were on the wrong side of the river, they were exposed to the constant attack of the enemy. They were vulnerable on all sides because they were living outside of the boundaries that God had prescribed. The land they settled for never became the blissful paradise that they had imagined and thought it was to look like. Instead, they were constantly under attack. Their homes were constantly in the front lines of a raging war. There was never any peace there. There was never any prosperity there. There was never any satisfaction there. Instead, their attachment to the wrong side of the river became the greatest source of heartache. And trouble in their lives. Could it be tonight. That the reason why we're struggling so hard. In our lives and in our homes. Is because we put roots down in a place. That God has not intended us to be. 
Are we living in a fashion that God had not promised for our security? Are we doing things as pastor preached last Sunday morning about get our house in order? Is our house in disarray to the point where we cannot get to the very... Think about it for a moment. The river was there, yet they chose to live just mere stones throw away from the promise and protection of the Almighty God. They could see the promise, yet they could not get there. How many times is... Have we driven by a church when we're lonely and distraught and our life is a wreck and we, we want to get there but there's something that's holding us back because the enemy knows that if you could just get to the promise of God, if you could get in the presence of God, everything's going to be alright. If I could just get to the protection and the provision of his house, I know that everything's going to be alright. The problem is we settle for less than what God has promised. It didn't make any sense to Reuben and Gad. They didn't understand why God would draw the line where he did. They didn't understand why God would do that. They didn't really respect the simple fact that God established the boundary for their own protection. Hmm. Hmm. So many times we question why, do, why is this and why is that and why not there and why not this? And we question, we try to push the boundary that God has put within the confines of His book. We try to push the limit to say, well, if I, you know, I'm going to go this far. I'm going to go, you know, God, I think it's good enough. I can see the river. I'm almost there, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live the way I want to live because... Sad fact remains is we live in a generation where nobody's going to tell anybody what to do. Had a man talking talking to me the other days of a friend. Uh, um, I would say uh, uh, I was on enemy lines with the business that I do, and we were talking about spiritual things. We're in a back room, and he's heading up a program, and he was telling me that he had all these young, these younger generations is what he called them. He never specified who or the age, but he said they want leadership qualities, yet they didn't want to follow any direction that I was giving them as their leader. He said there were specific things that had to be done a certain way in order for the event to function freely. And yet they questioned everything. He said, Tim, would you pray for me that God would give me wisdom on how to deal with the question of why instead of let's get it done. Our greatest obstacle of 2019 is simply believing that God has put promises and boundaries in our life not to keep us from stuff, but to protect us from stuff. Not to keep us from things, but to give us things. God says, I want to give you more, but there's a boundary that you have to abide in if you want the promises of God. See, God established the River Jordan as the eastern boundary of the promised land for their own good. But they became so overwhelmed with what they saw on the wrong side of the river that they thought they could just annex it into the promise of God. They thought they could enlarge God's boundaries without any consequence. And they learned the hard way that boundaries matter. 
God separates us from certain things in this world, not to deny us of the pleasure, but to save us from unnecessary trials, heartaches, and pain. When we foolishly try to cling to those things that we know are on the outside of those boundaries that God has established for our lives, we make ourselves vulnerable to the attacks of hell. The men of Reuben and Gad never understood that until it was too late. That they weren't created to live on the other side of the river. That they were made for the promise that God had given them. But somehow they became so enticed by a foreign land that they were passing through that they decided this is good enough. Where I am is good enough. What I'm doing is good enough. How much I pray is good enough. How much I give is good enough. How much I worship is good enough. The mentality of good enough will be the damaging factor of the blessings of the promise of the pouring out of God's Spirit to the body if we don't get to the promised land. They settled for something that fell short of what God wanted to give them. Our text, it asked a very pointed and direct question. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Think about that for a moment. All the riches in the world, all the success and accolades in the world, all the material possessions and the pride and prestige. What is the value of the whole world when measured against the hope of eternity? The answer is plain. The world's not big enough. It's not wide enough. It's not high enough. It's not deep enough. The world is simply not enough because we were not created for it. We were not created for this life alone. Therefore, we will never be satisfied. We will never be fulfilled. We will never find peace and joy in that which we seek on this side of heaven because we were made for eternity. We were made to dwell in heavenly places. We were made to experience the wonders of all of God's glory. And we will never be satisfied until we see something less or anything less. Reuben and Gad had settled for a troubled existence on the wrong side of that promise. Hear me tonight, the downfall of a good man or good woman is when their roots are in the same condition as Reuben and Gad. People settle for this world because they develop an exaggerated estimate of the importance of the temporal and a diminished view of the eternal. Hmm. We put too much value on stuff. Huh. Don't get me wrong. I want to dress nice and give God my best when I come. And I want to take care of what God has given me. But God chastised me many years ago. And my wife has forgiven me. See, when I was younger, I had a, I had a sweet ride. And I've told the story, but it goes without... I should tell it again, I had a 1979 Dodge Ram D50, four-speed. Anybody still know how to drive a, a manual? <laughs> that thing, 50 miles an hour, screamed like a cheetah. You sounded like you was running 100, but it was only 45 or 50. Had a hole in the floorboard on the passenger side. My, my buddies would ride and I'd move the floor mat. I'd hit a puddle and it was the fountain of youth. I took 
man. I took some friends out for dinner. <laughs> I didn't have a headliner. It was all the metal roof. And there was names written on the... <laughs> I'm trying to be easy here. My wife knows the story, but girls would get in and be like, who is Jessica? Oh, you know, it's a beautiful night out. They thought I was a gentleman because I opened the door for them getting in and getting out, but the reality was the door handles were broke on the inside. <laughs> oh, no, 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 don't, don't touch the door handle. I'll get that for you, honey. <laughs> Maybe that's what I should start doing. I'll get in better shape running around, break a door handle. <laughs> I went from a 1979 Dodge Ram D50 to a Pontiac Grand Am when my wife and I first got married. It was black. It was cool. It was the nicest ride I ever had. I had went to Walmart and I bought some mats and I, I put all the mats on the floorboard so the carpet wouldn't get dirty. If you ever ride my car, I still do that today. I just don't like dirty carpet. And God forgive me, I used to make my wife here, babe, I'd open the door for her. And she'd go to get it. Whoa, 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 hold on. Let's clack her feet. I felt the shaming penetrate from the pew. Anybody else feel that? I felt the shaming. God has forgiven me and we no longer clack feet. But I was so proud of that car. And then I, I got rid of it. And then I got a GMC Envoy black. It was sweet. I was married. I had a child. And I thought, you know, the coolest thing I could do as a young dad is put rims on this thing. And I did. I put 18-inch chrome rims on a GMC Envoy. They weren't spinners. No, they weren't spinners. And I thought I was cool. I, I mean, I washed my vehicles two times a week. I vacuumed it out. I detailed it because I was, I was proud. I thought all the value of my life had came to a GMC Envoy with chrome rims. One day I got done detailing it and had the hatch open. I'm wiping inside and I'm cleaning all of it out. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to back this out in the sun. And before I put some tire shine on there and all of a sudden I... Put it in reverse. And as I backed out of the garage, I hear a... And I thought, oh, no. I thought I ripped the garage door off. Instead, I hit my own car and I creased the whole side of my GMC Envoy. And the Holy Ghost inside of me spoke to me and said, you put so much emphasis on the shine and the care of the carpet and the wheels and the tin on the windows. In fact, you made your wife clack her feet and you've not let your kids eat in it to the fact that now it's creased and the value has dropped. Don't you know that everything of this life is one day going to depreciate? It's going to rust. It's going to fall apart. The suit's going to wear out. The suit's going to not fit anymore. But there's one thing that you have in this house tonight that will not wear out. It will not rust out. It will not give out. It will not fade out. That is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. There is a power that is in this house that the world cannot give and the world cannot take it away because the world is not enough. 
preach to somebody that's struggling within your spirit. You're on the fence. Am I in it or am I out of it? I'm telling you to get in the church. It's worth every moment. I'd rather go in the valley of despair and know that God is with me than stand alone on the mountaintop. We need to shake ourselves, stir ourselves, remind ourselves that this world is not enough. I'm closing if you'll stand with me. C.S. Lewis referred to this present world as the shadow lands. What a brilliant way to conceptualize this life. We, we live in a world that is overshadowed by sin. We live in a world that has fallen short of the glory of God. That everything in this life is touched by the shadow of the temporal. Our greatest joys are fleeting. Our happiest moments are temporary pleasures. Our highest achievements leave us longing for more. Life is simply this. It's too short. And all of our worldly treasures are corrupted. Everything that shines and glitters in this life will soon be tarnished by the passing of time. It's not enough. Nothing in this whole world can satisfy that longing that I have in my soul. That longing I have to feel His presence. I went through something many years ago that I never thought I would go through. It was physical and spiritual. We're on vacation in Disney World. My my wife is a Disney World guru and she had it all planned out and we walked all day long. They didn't have Apple Watches back then or Fitbits to track my walking. But last time we went, I walked an average of 14 miles a day. But I remember going back to the resort that night. I was exhausted. I thought, man, it was, it was one of our first times going to Disney World. And I thought to myself, man, I'm in Disney World. I never thought I'd make it to Disney World. So excited about it. I laid there in that resort, in that room, showered, and I laid down to close my eyes. My mind's eye turned on. I could not sleep. I started worrying about this and about that, and anxiety took over. I did not sleep for three days. He said, oh, you must have not been very spiritual. Oh, no, I was very, I, I, I was spiritual. I was living for God, doing what I knew to do. I knew they thought I'd gone crazy. I was walking the resort praying, God, I need you. God, I called friends at 4 o'clock in the morning. Please pray for me. I'm struggling. I feel, feel like I'm here at Disney World. I should be experiencing. I'm, I've got life at its greatest. I've got a beautiful wife and beautiful kids. And here I am. I'm at Disney World. The happiest place on earth. I've reached the proverbial pinnacle of life. Only did I know that I was embarking on the greatest spiritual attack of my mind and my soul that I ever would. I went through a battle for almost a year. In my mind, in my spirit, I still preached. I still taught Bible studies. I still prayed. I still fasted. But every night before I went to bed, I would get sick. It was a ritual every night. I lost lots of weight. 
I was tormented. Thoughts of, of suicide and thinking it was done. What have I got to live for? The enemy was lying to me, telling me that there was nothing left. And I remember one service, almost a year later, I went to a special service and I was sitting in the back and you know me long enough know now I'm not quiet and I'm exuberant in my worship because I love God because God's been so good to me. And I sat in the back with my wife. She said, we're not sitting up front? I said, no, not tonight. And the Holy Ghost started to move and people were shouting and dancing. And I stood back there and I just lifted my hands all by myself. No one knew. No one knew. No one knew what I was going through except my wife. And I stood there with my hands raised. I wanted to shout, but I couldn't. I wanted to get involved, but I couldn't. I was so overwhelmed. I started, I just simply said, God, you've never left me. The enemy of my soul is telling me that it's over and it's done. That I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. Shouldn't be going through this. You shouldn't be dealing with this. You're a Christian. And all of a sudden, the Holy Ghost came over me. Because I realized that I don't live for this world. That my life is not my own, but I've been bought with a price. And with my hands lifted, the Spirit of God came over me. And I completely surrendered to God. And it came over me in peace that passes all understanding. I preached about it. I prayed it. But I never felt it in an eternal value like I did at that moment. My world was in chaos. But I realized it wasn't enough. I needed God. As every eye is closed right now, I'm pulling for hearts. I'm reaching for somebody. I've come to this pulpit tonight to encourage you. To plead with you as the old time preachers used to do. I'm pleading with you. Don't trade this world for the promise of eternity with God. I don't know who I've preached to today. But the world would never be enough for you. No matter the value that you make, no matter the car you drive, the clothes you possess, it will never be enough. So I open this altar down. No one's looking. No one's looking. I open this altar to young people that are struggling at school. And the enemy's lying to you, telling you, just give in a little bit. Why don't you stop on this side of the river? Why don't you just plant yourself on this side of the promise? You can still see the church, but you don't have to be in the church. I'm calling for you. Who is it? Who will be the brave young man or young woman that steps out that says the world's not enough for me? I need God here and now more than I've ever needed Him. This altar's open right now. Who in this house will understand and make that declaration? I need God. I need Him because God wants to use me. God wants to put something inside of me for this latter day revival. Come on, begin to cry out to the Lord. Now lift your hands all over the house. Say, Lord, I need you.